Hallelujah. All right. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Yeah, that's important, as you'll see, as we go along in this, in this presentation. Um, I, I should tell you that I am delighted to be back at Middle East University. This is not the first time I've been here. And uh, any time I've had the opportunity to come here, I've never gone away sorrowing. I've always gone away feeling that that was a wonderful experience. And uh, it's kind of thrilling to come here and to find friends um, whom I've known over the years. I, uh, I don't know whether you've experienced this yet, but, I, but trust me, you will. If you're, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you will go around the world and you will run into people like Mike Wixwatt, whom you've known for an awfully long time, and Yes, uh, Shauna Vmeister, whom I still want to call Shauna Beal. And uh, yes, we were in classes together at Andrews University. A terribly romantic place, but I won't, I won't go further than that. And, uh, um, uh, and of course, uh, Ron Vmeister. And uh, there, there are several others here uh, whom, whom I've met over the years. It's a wonderful thing to be part of this family of God. And I sometimes forget. You know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I think, oh, another day, another bunch of people whom I have to put up with, and I have better things to do than whatever I've got lined up for today. You know, that particular view of things where, where you are viewing other people as the problem in your life rather than the solution is one that's actually quite easy to adopt, unfortunately. And it's one that's commonly, commonly seen in our world. You can see me, but I wonder what you really see. I, I came here with certain preconceptions in my mind because I've been here before. I know that I'm in Lebanon. I know the food is going to be good. Um, I know that the people are going to be friendly. And I know the weather's going to probably be pretty good as well. This is a beautiful country. And, uh, and those are the things that my mind is prepared to see. However... If I was south of the border with Israel, I might be looking up here and seeing an enemy. Or if I was not a Christian, I might be looking around and seeing people who are my competition, not my brothers and sisters. One of the things that I've noticed going around the world to different Christian institutions is that almost universally, you look around and you see this remarkable diversity within the groups. Um, why is that? It's because what we see are not different races, different classes of people, what we see are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And that, to a certain degree, is kind of what I'm talking about right now. But it's going to get a little bit, it's going to seem as if I'm not. I want to bring this text to your attention. You've already seen it um, up on the screen here. I love it because I'm a scientist. And it resonates with me because science is all about empirical data, what we take in through our senses. Look at all of the words here that John is writing in his letter that, that I've highlighted. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. What, what was it that was from the beginning? Now, who's he talking about here? God, right. Uh, this is actually a profound statement about the reality in which we live. It's one that ran counter to what people believed commonly in the Roman Empire when he was writing this. There were two major classes of philosophy, Epicurean and Stoic philosophy, that were very popular in the Roman Empire. And certainly the Epicureans did not believe that there was a beginning. Everything was infinite. Everything, just the, the universe is infinite. It's existed forever. And there you have it. But John is saying, no, there's a beginning. There's a beginning here. And when you understand that there's a beginning to everything that we see, that changes what you see around you. But he goes on, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. Think of all of the, see, he's touching on all these senses. He's saying, this is something that we experienced. This is not some, some fanciful theological view of things that I'm about to present to you. This is what we saw. It's what we touched. It's what we heard. And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, he's saying to us, is real. Jesus Christ walked in this country, in Lebanon. This is holy land, where we are right now. But you've heard that before. What does that really mean? I want to illustrate this a little bit with my grandfather. Now, I should tell you that I grew up as a missionary's kid in, in another Islamic country, uh, Malaysia. And uh, later on, we moved to Thailand. And when, 
We're in Thailand. Thailand is obviously a Buddhist country. Malaysia is a, um, a, an Islamic country. And um, there, there, there are a lot of consequences to that. But one of those consequences was that obviously I wasn't with my relatives. So I only met my uh, father's father, my paternal grandfather, a few times. Now, he was raised in a different universe than I had been raised in. Um, his family was German, and he was raised speaking German, and yet I never heard him speak German. And there's a very good reason for that. This all happened in Australia, and there was something called the First World War. And the First World War, when that happened, the Australian government came into the German community there, and they said, I'm sorry, you are no longer German. You are all English now, and uh, you are going to be educated in English. They shut down the Lutheran schools, and it was horribly shameful to be German. So my memory of seeing and hearing and shaking hands with my grandfather was not one of a warm and loving man. Now, everybody tells me that he was warm and loving. I just didn't know him very well. And he didn't know me very well. I've also been told that he had a very well-developed sense of humor. And I certainly never saw that. I just didn't know him very well. And so my mental image of him was of somebody who was a little bit stiff, a little bit cold, very precise, and you'd better not misbehave around. An old man whom I shook hands with and addressed as grandpa. And not that long ago, I came across this photograph of him. This is him with my Uncle Lyndon. And it changed the way, it changed my view of him. Look at it. It's such a beautiful picture. Um, doesn't he look like a tender and loving man there? At least he does to me. Um, fabulous German kind of haircut. But, uh, you know, this, this is a young man. He's not an old man. He's a young man, and he's holding his son in his arms. And there's something beautiful about it. It changed my view of my grandfather. And sometimes we need to know God a little bit better if we are going to understand what he is really like. In fact, 
That is our job as Christians, sharing the good news about God and particularly um, uh, Jesus Christ. King David wrote this. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Who is the you that he's talking about here? God, right. God. And um, do you think that God just knit David together in his mother's womb? What about you? Yeah, I can assure you, God did that too. Yeah, I, I remember taking um, uh, a class in human uh, development uh, when I was an undergraduate, and it almost put me off ever having a child myself. It's unbelievable how much can go wrong. In fact, yeah, every single person is a miracle. There is no doubt about that. Uh, it's a good thing God was there supervising. And David's response is, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. It is, I, this is such a joyous, wonderful view of what a human being is. And it doesn't matter who you are. God made you, and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I want you to compare this view with the view of Charles Darwin. Darwin wrote, man in his arrogance thinks himself a great work worthy the interposition of a deity. More humble and, I believe, truer to consider him created from animals. I can actually tell you that animals are fearfully and wonderfully made too. Um, so this is not quite the um, humbling thing that I think Darwin thought it was. But at the end of the day, very pessimistic indeed. Mm -hmm. You are no different from any other animal. Uh, you know, you can think better than a cheetah, but a cheetah can run faster than you. That's, that's it. But there's nothing, nothing particularly special about humans. And one of the things that Darwin obsessed about was examples in our bodies and in other organisms of things that are, appear to be extremely well made. One of those things is the human eye. In fact, all vertebrates have an eye like this. So do mollusks like snails and clams and so on. They have this basic design of eye. It's a camera type eye. Um, those of you who think it's impressive, there are those who believe that uh, this type of eye evolved at least 16 times, possibly 20-something times independently in mollusks. That's how easy it is from a Darwinian perspective. But 
there are profound differences to the architecture of these things. I'm going to concentrate on the vertebrate just for a minute because it has been presented amazingly enough as an example of bad design, and I will explain why. There at the back of the eye, there is a layer of light-sensitive cells. And if you're looking at my smiling face, what's happening is that image is being focused by the lens of your eye on the back of your uh, retina, yeah, onto those light-sensitive cells. And as a consequence of that, somehow or other you see and there's a lot going on. There is a lot of biochemistry going on. There's a lot of anatomy. There's a lot of physiology. There's a lot of information processing, a lot of all sorts of things, and you're doing it effortlessly. We're just going to look at a, a, a little detail of it. Just one thing that is supposed to be actually bad design in your eye. And that has to do with how the signals from those light-sensitive cells get to your brain. Obviously, if those light-sensitive cells are just seeing light and not telling any other cells about it, you wouldn't be seeing anything. But thankfully, they are connected using nerves to your brain. The weird thing is, those nerves run in front of the light-sensitive cells. And uh, people who do not believe that you are fearfully and wonderfully made have looked at that and said, oh dear me, what a bad design. God would never have done that. Let's zoom in on just a little bit of this retina and look at what's going on there and what people think is wrong with it. We'll start with these light-sensitive cells. Now, light-sensitive cells, it turns out, use a huge amount of energy. I've seen estimates up to approximately a quarter of the energy that your body is using when you are sitting still with your eyes open, about a quarter of the energy is just seeing. Um, that seems extraordinary, so I wouldn't take it to the bank, and I haven't found multiple references that have really gone through. Uh, you know, you've got to be careful about these things. But what is, the, the reason that it rings possibly plausible is because this uses a huge amount of energy. There is no doubt about that. Where does your body get energy from? from food. food, right. Mm -hmm. What's in the food that gives you energy? We've all just eaten supper. There are nutrients in there. What's that? Carbohydrates. Carbohydrates. You're good. You're good. <laughs> Zoe, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm, my learning disability is people's names, but I, don't, I like the name Zoe. So, Anyway, one of my good friends has a daughter named Zoe. Um, yeah, how, how, do, how do those carbohydrates get to these cells, do you think? 
They're digesting in your stomach right now. How do they get up here? They're absorbed into your what? Bloodstream, right? And then your heart's pumping it around and the heart sends the blood up to your eyes. If you've ever cut your eye, you know there's a lot of blood going on there. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, um, have any of you ever tried looking through blood? I have. Yeah, I have. Um, when I was in high school, I, I fell and um, uh, damaged my eye, and um, there, I, I, thought I thought I was blind. I couldn't see anything, that was for sure, because it was full of blood. I just, you can't see through blood. So where do you think that blood supply is? Do you think it's in front of these light-sensitive cells or behind? behind? You're good. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, the blood supply has to be behind. So given that, where is it that the nerves have to go? In front of the light-sensitive cells, right. If you have the kind of retina that we have, then this has to be the arrangement of things in that retina. But, so, so we, we call this an engineering necessity. And you see this kind of thing in all sorts of designed products. It may not be perfect, but it is necessary because it's because of the way things work. Here's the problem with this arrangement. When light comes in, it gets diffused as it passes through those nerve cells. So you have these fabulous light-sensitive cells, but you're blurring the image a little bit as it goes through. What a pity. It's like having a very expensive camera and putting a lens on there that's messing up the image. Why would you pay for that very expensive sensor and not make the most of it? It doesn't make sense. And yet, this is what we, we observe. Definitely this arrangement. And um, <clears throat> there's something else about this arrangement that people see as a huge problem. And that is, if you're running the nerves across the front of your retina, then they have to go through the retina at some point and there can't be light-sensitive cells there, so therefore you have a blind spot in each of your eyes. I don't know, have, have any of you ever bothered to find your blind spot? It's, it's very easy to do. You can, you know, if I'm boring tomorrow during the sermon, and you, you can do this with your cell phone, I've done it. You just, you just put a plus and a minus sign on, on a piece of paper or on, on your cell phone screen. You cover one eye and you look at the minus sign, let's see, yeah. And you'll notice that the plus sign will disappear as, you, as long as you're looking at it. That's your blind spot and you can switch sides and do the same thing. It's kind of cool, kind of disturbing to realize that there is a big spot there where you are not seeing anything. Except, of course, you are, because how many eyes do you have? Two, yeah. And it turns out 
that these eyes were cleverly designed so the blind spot isn't in the same area. And so this eye can fill in the blank where, there's, where this eye is not seeing anything and vice versa. And it's all put together in your brain and you can see almost 180 degrees without a break at all in what you're seeing. That's quite clever. And yet, Richard Dawkins, who is a, an atheist evangelist and a, 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 an enthusiastic promoter of Darwinism, called the design of the human eye the design, he said, it's the design of a complete idiot. Why did he see it that way? Because he's a Darwinist. And remember, Darwin encourages people to not see themselves as fearfully and wonderfully made. We are the product of a process of sort of hit and miss discoveries of solutions to problems and certainly not the design of a brilliant creator or anything like that. Um, bad design is expected, and guess what? Bad design is what he saw. But let's go back and take a look. Remember, we're Christians, and we believe that all human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made. So, hmm, what could be going on here? Remember, it's absolutely necessary that the design be this way if we're going to have the kind of visual system that we have. When you see this sort of thing in engineered, in engineered systems, sometimes in really, really good designs, you see an engineered solution to whatever the problem is. So it's like engineering on top of engineering. It's very clever. And it turns out that is what's going on in your eyes. That's why you can see me so amazingly well. That may be disturbing. I'm sorry if it is. It, yeah. There are cells that are commonly associated with neurons, uh, with nerve cells called glial cells. And in your eye, there are specialized glial cells that act like fiber optics. What they do is they take that light that is hitting on the surface of the retina and it transfers the light through to the light-sensitive cells so that it is not dissipated. And there are certain things about these cells that we could, we could actually spend until tomorrow afternoon sometime talking about how clever these things are. Um, they are, they basically have dimensions in such a way that they are tuned to the specific wavelength of light that the light sensitive cells are sensitive to, and they also help to increase the clarity with which you see things. So instead of being a bad design, what we're seeing here is a necessary situation that has an engineered solution to it that is better than things would have been if 
the neurons were placed behind the light-sensitive cells. I find it impressive myself. Um, I hope that you do. We are, in fact, fearfully and wonderfully made. If you're interested in this, here are some pictures from the paper, and I'm sorry that you can't see them as clearly uh, with the projector as, as would be ideal, but basically what you're seeing here are the red stained cells, which are these glial cells, these fiber optic cells. Down here we have the light sensitive cells. Stuffed in here we have the bodies, um, the soma of the neurons, and up here we have all of the axons, the wires that are carrying the signals away. It's really wonderful. And, by the way, if you, um, you know, just, just to make sure that these things actually work in this way, they isolated one of these fiber optic cells and got it oriented the right way. And these, these are actual fiber optics. Okay, so they're actually pieces of glass and, uh, or, or um, string, whatever you want to call it, fibers of glass. And they got this thing lined up and they checked to see whether they could transmit light through them. And yes, in fact, they transmit light very efficiently. When I look at these things, I'm reminded of this optimistic view of life that the Bible gives us. The Bible, which starts out talking about the creation, encourages us to understand that our world is wonderful. We are wonderful. Everything is wonderful. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. The only people who make things not wonderful are ourselves. Here in Ecclesiastes, this is the most hopeful text in all of Scripture, at least to me. This is um, Solomon writing, and he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. I hear people quote this first sentence all the time, but it's the rest of it that's really the hopeful bit. Yes, of course, everything's beautiful. God made it. We may have broken it. We may live in a world that is marred by sin, but it is still wonderful and beautiful. It's still worth celebrating. But let, you know, let's read on from that first sentence. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Certainly, I feel that. I, I, I want to live forever. I, I, can't, um, I, I can't imagine not living forever. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Every once in a while, physicists have a tendency to say something to the effect of, we've got it all figured out. There's nothing else to discover. This almost sounds like a joke because as soon as they start saying that, history has shown us that they suddenly discover that they were wildly wrong and uh, there's a whole lot more to discover out there. But um, I'm lucky because I'm a biologist. But I used to worry a little bit. I used to think, what about when we get to heaven? What's going to happen once I've figured everything out? I mean, we've got eternity. That's a very long time. Um, I speak quite a bit at churches. 
And I do occasionally meet people who know everything. <laughs> Every church seems to have one. And um, you know what? They're very sad people. I like to discover new things. And that's, that's exactly the point. We have eternity ahead of us, right? But what this text tells us is we're never going to have it all figured out. There's always going to be something new, something amazing, something to be thrilled about, something new to learn every day. That's one of several reasons why I look forward to spending eternity with our Creator and Redeemer. I don't have to worry that it's ever going to run out. It's never going to be over. I'm not going to have a good time for a while and then, oh dear me, I, you know, I know I shouldn't say this, but the idea of being stuck with 72 virgins for eternity is pretty much my idea of hell. And, um, you know, imagine, imagine if that was going to be your entire reality for the rest of eternity. I mean, I can imagine for a, uh, you know, teenage boy that might be exciting for a day. But dear me, dear me, how wonderful that it isn't going to be like that. How wonderful that, you know, God, God is infinite and He is the creator of all things. We're never, ever, ever going to get to the end of it. Fabulous, a fabulous promise. And how wonderful that when we look at the creation now and we see things that are actually wrong with it, we can still look forward with hope because the future is not an unending cycle of death and mutation and selection and human beings having to die a million deaths to get just a little bit better or anything like that. That is not the future. Our future is a new creation. This is what God himself said. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Not only on creation Sabbath do we celebrate the old creation, not only do we celebrate the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and the rest of creation is a wonderful revelation for those who are willing to see it of God's love, God's providence, God's wisdom, and all of those other things. We can look forward to a new creation. I can't wait until that day. For one thing, I want my eyes to work properly. I'm fed up with wearing glasses. I'm fed up with the fact that my eyes were damaged yeah, in the last flu pandemic, yeah. 1970. Thank you, National Health System of Great Britain. It didn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah, you get your flu vaccines. What can I say? 
The point is, yes, I will have new eyes, better than the eyes that I have right now. And I will be with the Creator who made all things. This is going to be absolutely wonderful. Paul quoted Isaiah when he said, As it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. As we contemplate the creation, it not only generates a a feeling of wonder at the God who made all of this. It also gives us hope of what is to come. I can't imagine what heaven is going to be like. It's not going to be sitting around on a cloud playing a harp for me, I don't think. Maybe a guitar. We'll see. But this is why we celebrate Creation Sabbath in the Seventh-day Adventist Church on a global scale. Uh, So right now, I've actually been getting all kinds of messages from all over the world, particularly the South Americans. They're really into Creation Sabbath. I hope that you here in the Middle East are going to sort of take this thing, enjoy it, and run with it, and understand that not only are you fearfully and wonderfully made, but your neighbors are fearfully and wonderfully made as well. And that this is a message that we have to share with those who live around us as well. Let's end with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you that we are your creation. I thank you that even when we look at this world, which has been marred by sin, that we can still see your hand in it. I pray for your blessing on us as we celebrate Creation Sabbath together as your children. I pray that we'll be inspired to see one another perhaps a little bit differently, to see our neighbors in a different light, and also to see you in a new light. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.